Good morning. I'm excited to begin our one-week series in the book of Jonah. I'm just kidding. Um, It's always interesting to read uh, the Bible in long form. Uh, Many would say as it's intended to be read, intended to be uh, spoken out loud or understood as a story, one collective unit. And so uh, that's why this first week really wanted to uh, take the few minutes to really see the breadth of what God is showing us and revealing to us in this book we call Jonah. This strange page and a half, four minute read uh, where God's prophet is swallowed up by according to Veggie Tales, a whale, and spit out to do his will, and is angry with him the whole way through. Uh, I love this story. I think it is a complex and fascinating story, and I love complex, fascinating stories. Uh, The art of narrative is never lost on me. Uh, I love stories that are uh, unexpected and surprising, and that's why I thought this week, for an inordinate amount of time, how do I not start this sermon talking about the hit TV show Breaking Bad? Uh, and so rather than talking about Breaking Bad, I'm going to tell you why I wanted to talk about Breaking Bad, because I'm a good pastor. I'm not going to give you a sermon illustration about this wicked, wretched show, but I'm going to tell you why I might maybe wanted to. Uh, this show, like many shows like it, or many stories, or anything that contains good, rich narrative, uh, we see that there are surprising, rich, complex elements uh, that make a good story, ones that show really the breadth of human experience. We find alongside great joy and laughter, harrowing tales of of sorrow and pain, Uh, ones that are always uh, surprising with these unexpected twists and turns and stories that are able to contain somehow many stories within one story like nesting dolls themselves. And what might surprise you, uh, maybe not as much since we just read it and now you are thinking about it, is that Jonah, this strange page and a half long story, in the middle of our Bibles, in the middle of the Old Testament, is a rich, complex, expansive story just like this. It's filled with unexpected twists and turns, complex characters, challenging moral themes, but also has many different stories kind of being told at once. And that's what I want to suggest to us this morning, is that in this really rich, compressed format, Jonah really tells the story of everything. Jonah tells the story of everything. It contains these like hyperlinks, if you could think about it this way, of of things all over the Bible, interconnects the different themes and theological truths and realities and stories, and weaves together everything that the Bible says about God, about humanity, about the nations, and ultimately about Jesus, though his name is not mentioned here once. And what I want to do this morning as we start this kind of five-week study through Jonah is just explore what are these narrative story threads being woven into Jonah? What, what about reading Jonah teaches us how to read the whole Bible, really to see everything that it has to say? Uh, but also, as we do this, as we kind of pull apart these threads and look at these kind of four threads that I see running uh, through Jonah here that I want to show us this morning, uh, what I want us to see is that I think these are meant to reflect back to us in this story that isn't about us what is true about God his world, and his purposes, and ultimately about us as well. And so the first thread I want to pull out of the story of Jonah and just look at broadly across the whole book is this. Thread number one, 
We should look at Jonah as a story of humanity. We should look at Jonah as a story of humanity. Uh, Children of the 90s, which I know uh, many of you are or consider yourselves to be, uh, grew up in an era where the Bible was taught to us by talking fruit uh, called VeggieTales. Anybody big VeggieTales fans in the room? Okay, two of you. And allocate. All right, that makes sense. Uh, All right, so one age-appropriate one and one whose parents are just bringing back the good old days. I love it. Uh, VeggieTales are really maybe more broadly the popular imagination because what's so fascinating about this story of Jonah is that it kind of exists in the popular imagination far before anybody ever interacts with the text biblically. And so that creates an interesting way that we read and interact with God's word in this way, these very popular stories. But if you know the VeggieTales version, or at least the version of this story that exists in popular imagination, it goes a little something like this. Uh, Jonah is this very one-dimensional man who one day, out of nowhere, why Jonah? Of all these people, out of nowhere, that's how the story picks up, right? Out of nowhere, Jonah is called by God to preach his message of justice and mercy to the big bad city of Nineveh and overcome by his own fear for his life. Overcome by his fear of the Lord's calling, he flees, ultimately faces a storm on the boat where he's trying to flee off to Tarshish, which would have been kind of like the Hawaii compared to Nineveh, and gets thrown off the boat eaten by a whale, not a fish, and ultimately comes around and braves up to the task and preaches God's message of justice and mercy, just as God calls him to. And this version of the story, maybe I'm, I don't, I'm not meaning to hate on VeggieTales, that's just the most popular one. I think of all of them, VeggieTales is probably the best. But of all the stories that exist in the popular imagination and how we think about Jonah going into this story, so much of it revolves around God's, or Jonah's fear. That these things are happening to Jonah out of the blue in this unexpected way. God calls him to some big, bad, scary thing, and Jonah is afraid. And so the lesson, if we read the story that way, is that we should not try to flee from the calling of God, but instead be brave in the face of danger because God will make us brave. And certainly if that's what we take away, that isn't untrue. But I think there's a lot more to the story here well-meaning church planters, perhaps all over the world, and maybe on this Sunday morning, uh, will look at, at their city and look at their church and declare, this is our Nineveh. God is calling us to go and reach the city. And despite our fears, despite our concerns, despite people telling us that it's never going to work, we're supposed to do the hard and challenging thing. And again, none of these things are necessarily wrong or incorrect or maybe inaccurate readings of the text. But what we know as we interacted with the whole story just now through our reading is that the actual story is much more complicated, is it not? The actual story is much more complicated than one man's fear about a scary task. The actual story is much more complicated than God simply calling us to go do challenging and difficult things. The actual story is much darker. Now, we don't get a lot of context about who Jonah is, but for the original audience who would have interacted with this work, it's likely that no introduction was needed. What we see in 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Kings 14, 15, uh, tells us that Jonah Jonah was a prophet uh, who was ministering during the reign of Israel's King Jeroboam II. And unlike the other prophets who might be seen as his contemporaries, uh, prophets like Hosea and Amos, who criticized the king and the royal administration, 
administration for their aggressive military policies to always be trying to expand and extend Israel's influence and power. Unlike these other prophets like Hosea and Amos who looked at the king and looked at uh, his administration and pointed out his injustice and his unfaithfulness to God, pointed out the pain that he inflicted upon people and pointed out his heart which was far from God. Unlike these prophets who were called by God to reveal these things and mirror back these realities to the king, what we see in 2 Kings chapter 14 is that Jonah went right along with it. In fact, he was all about these aggressive military policies to expand Israel's influence and power to take more ground for God's kingdom. And that's why Tim Keller tells us that original readers would have probably remembered Jonah as an intensely patriotic, highly partisan nationalist. He was all about Israel, all about their concerns, all about whatever it took to build a great city and to build this great kingdom of God, despite what injustices might be incurred along the way, despite whatever unfaithfulness uh, to God might have happened along the way, all just means to a better, more bright end. And this is really relevant for us to understand as we go into this story of Jonah, because Nineveh, which, by the way, is the capital city of Assyria, but we've, we've read about that, we've heard about that, we know that uh, Assyria was this challenging nation for Israel. They are, by every stretch of the imagination, enemies of the state of Israel who constantly posed a threat to the people of God. But beyond this, they were also a wicked, cruelly violent people. Uh, on top of this, they were uh, also a, a people who were uh, known by historians, known by the people around them as people that you didn't want to mess with. They were cruel and wicked and haters of God, pagan nation that was far from him. And quite simply, between these two things, between kind of the socio-political backdrop and then also his personal uh, distaste for people who did not live lives quite like he did or quite like he desired, uh, quite simply, Jonah didn't like them. Jonah didn't like Nineveh. And when God called Jonah to preach God's mercy to them, his fleeing to Tarshish was less driven by his fear of the Ninevites and less driven by the fear for his own life than it was driven by his hatred and contempt for them. Less driven by his fear than his hatred and contempt for them, Jonah harbored such an intense bitterness and anger and therefore prejudice towards the Ninevites that he would rather they have experienced the judgment he felt that they had coming to them than to be faithful and give them the opportunity that God was giving them to hear this message of justice and respond to God's invitation to his mercy. Jonah desired vengeance in the place of mercy. And so he fled, not out of fear, out of hatred and contempt. And even when God is merciful to rescue Jonah from his own fleeing, he is still, we see at the end of chapter 4, it's kind of funny, I've made the joke over the last couple of weeks that I need to get a better sense of when songs end, uh, because I'm kind of slow on my transition there. I'm like, oh yeah, it's over, got to get up and do some announcements at the end of our uh, gathering, it feels a little bit like that when we read chapter 4, does it not? We see this ongoing dialogue, and Jonah's mad at God, and, jo and God is teaching Jonah a lesson, and then it just ends, right? 
even though this story resolves in this brilliant way and God tries to be gracious with his servant and show him mercy is mine to extend and take away, judgment is mine to give. As the Apostle Paul points out in Romans chapter 12, uh, we should not desire vengeance because this belongs to the Lord. Even though God teaches this to Jonah, he is still ultimately unable to move past his anger and the sense of injustice he feels that these undeserving, wicked people, Nineveh, might repent. God forbid that they might repent of their sin and receive the mercy of God. So what does this teach us about the story of humanity, a.k.a. ourselves? What does this random page-and-a-half text in the Old Testament about a guy swallowed by a fish and spit out to preach teach you about yourself? Well, I think the first thing is this. It's simple. We are sinful people. The main character of Jonah's story turns out to be a bit of an anti-hero who shows himself to be just as sinful and just as in need of God's grace as the people he was called to preach to. Jonah reminds us in mirrors back to us that no one is exempt from the curse of sin. The proverbial apple does not fall far from the tree. We are just as capable of sin as anyone, even the people we self-righteously look down on and hold with contempt. And we are therefore just as deserving of God's wrath as anyone. That's true about us. Now, the good news is that Jesus has both forgiven and freed us from the curse of sin. But even still, Jonah reminds us of the extent and reality of the wicked nature and sinful bodies and sinful world that we still inhabit. And shows us also that even as the people of God, we often have mixed motives. We often have mixed motives. We might desire to do the will of God. But we are not really totally free from our sinful desires. It reminds me of the dynamic that Paul explains in Romans chapter 7, 15. He says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not, I do what I do not want to do, but I, or I do not do the thing I want to do, but do the very thing I hate. Do you feel that way sometimes? And your desire to love and walk with God and follow his will in ways that somewhere in you is a motive that is a little more mixed than you might like to admit. I do the very thing that I hate. Jonah reflects to us that that's a reality that we embody and inhabit as even as the people of God living in this fallen world. Jonah is an example to us how we are often caught between two desires. In one sense, Jonah might have really wanted to obey God. Maybe he liked the idea of being a prophet. He liked his station and his position. He liked to preach with the authority of God to the powers that be. Maybe he had these desires. Maybe they were mixed. But really what we see in this story is that in a much more real sense, uh, that God had to marshal half the forces of nature to get his prophet to do anything in the words of Tim Mackey. And I think this reflects something true in us. Therefore, what this means is that as we read this story, it's not random. God meant this for us. And I think that what Jonah is for us in this story of humanity is an invitation to think beyond where our lives might be surrendered to God, but to think instead further to where our lives might not be. 
It tells us that even our own motives can be mixed. Even if we are the people of God, desire to do his will, desire to walk in his ways, our motives can be mixed. And we need to look past, look beyond simply where our lives are surrendered to God and ask by the Spirit to reveal to us in his wisdom where we're not, where we're out of step. I think of two disciplines come to mind here because we all love the practical, right? Tell me what to do. I think about, you know, the preacher always tells you to read your Bible and pray, and I'm going to tell you to read your Bible and pray, but I'm going to tell you to do it a specific way. As we interact with Jonah and all of God's word, as we come under the authority to be taught and shaped by the truth and revelation of God's word, I think the most important thing is that as we interact, we don't always see ourselves as the good guy. You are meant to be convicted. You're meant to be changed. We know we're not perfect. We know our failures. We know our sin. Yet somehow those thoughts, those acknowledgments, evacuate our brains when we go to God's word. We read the scripture as though we're preparing a sermon for the people that we don't like. Preparing arguments to soar up in our brains against the people who think differently than us. We think about all the people that this text could apply to, and maybe I should text this to so and so and so and so, but rarely do we sit before God, quiet, and say, what does this say about me? What does this show me that I'm maybe not the good guy that I think I am? And in prayer, we do the same. We come to God in prayer so often with many, many, many words, telling God truth that he spoke into existence. Telling God about problems that he knows the extent of far more than you do. Telling God about the situation of our lives. Asking for things that we think we need. How often do we sit there and wait? How often do we meditate on his word and his truth and ask God by his spirit to shape us? How often do we do these things assuming in our prayer that there is something in us that we do not see? Jonah tells us that We aren't as pure as we think we are. Our motives are more mixed than we might like to admit. As we pursue God in these disciplines, these stories help to shape us to know that this is a reality that we need to respond to. The second thread, second story, these are all shorter than the first one, by the way, if you're watching the time. Jonah is not just a story about humanity. It is a story about God. Again, in the popular level kind of retelling, maybe the VeggieTales version. I don't want to pick on VeggieTales anymore, so I'll just call it the popular level understanding. Uh, The way that God is often presented, uh, I I verified this, by the way. I did independent research this week. Uh, my, My oldest son has a Jonah cardboard book, and I flipped through that to make sure that what I'm telling you is accurate and representative of the popular level story. So just know that. Uh, but in the popular level story, God is an angry, all-powerful trickster who picks Jonah to go preach to the scary Ninevites. And that's kind of how it exists. God's kind of in the background. And this story is really all about Jonah. Really all about him. Jonah tells a really different story. Especially when we interact with it on the whole. You see, Jonah tells the story of a God whose sovereign purpose for Jonah and Nineveh will prevail and who is gracious and merciful to the people who are far off and to his servant. 
So the first thing is God is a sovereign God to be feared. You see, Jonah's story, I think if we allow it to really crash his head on into our narrow, self-interested, disenchanted world, because often, if we're honest, we, like Jonah, think that we can simply live as though God does not exist and is not a factor in our lives. That he can be compartmentalized, made irrelevant or ignored when it is convenient, so that we can live as we please. That's why this story is a wrecking ball, shattering our perspective that God is an accessory to our lives, that he is an optional add-on attachment, and instead it points us to a truth that is true whether we acknowledge it or not, that God is sovereign and his purposes will prevail. Whether you come around to it or not, God isn't constrained by the boundaries of possibility as we understand them. Everything is realistic for the one who authored reality. That's true about God. If he needs to command the sea, marshal his creation, or work in the hearts of men, either softening or hardening them to do his will, then he will do it. God is sovereign and his purposes will prevail. And that's why these stories that remind us of these truths, that cause us to imagine realities that our small, frail minds often miss, is meant to be formative. You see, Jonah and stories like this invite us out of the micro-narrative of our lives, invite us out of our own little world into the meta-narrative of God's sovereign will and purpose. And therefore, for us as readers, those who interact with what God is revealing to us here in his word, it gives us an opportunity by his mercy and by his grace to consider before him where our attention is too narrow where our expectations are too small, where our view of God is too little, where our interests might be divided. Because God is a sovereign God whose purposes will prevail, but also Jonah teaches us in this story about God that he is a gracious and merciful God. Not only towards the Ninevites, but towards Jonah also. That's the the biggest irony of this story is that the biggest kind of trajectory of grace has to do with the people we weren't really expecting. And though it says something of the magnitude of God's grace, that he might forgive a cruel, violent, some would call it terroristic Nineveh, the great irony of this story is that the person most in need of mercy was the one sent to proclaim it. And that points us to a couple truths. One, no sin is too great for God. No sin is too great for God. There is no wrong that the blood of Jesus cannot cover, no matter how wicked, no matter how desperately evil. There is no sin that the grace of God cannot cover. As my favorite favorite book says, Richard Sibbs writes, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. That's true about God's grace. And that should really change not only how we think about people who we see as in need of God's grace, kind of on this meta, larger level, but I think also kind of at the micro level as well. It should really change and influence how we think about others, even those within the family of God, that we see a possibility of mercy. We see a possibility of grace. No matter how frustrating their sin is, no matter how much pain it inflicted upon you or other people, that it is not too far for God's grace and mercy to reach, that God 
God sent his son to die for that sin and many others you wouldn't dare to imagine. It should change how we think, change how we see other people. But it also tells us, as the people of God, you can repair with God even after poor decisions and rebellion lead to terrible consequences. You can repair with God. God's grace and mercy for you isn't a one-time, one-size-fits-all application to your life, and then he vanishes into the clouds and is done with you forever. No, he walks with you day by day by that same grace, and his power is shaping you and molding you into the image of his son, that even when you sin and even when you fail, our kids learned last week a million zillion times, God is gracious to forgive. God is gracious to walk with you. God is gracious to continue showing you mercy day after day. And you can repair, even though you feel the consequences and the judgment for your sin, you can repair with God. Because as James chapter 4 tells us, it's one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Because in chapter 4 verse 1, it begins with this line, You adulterous people. And goes on to list all of these horrible sins, listing down the rap sheet of things that you and I are guilty of on a a real level every single day. Reading off our rap sheet and then ends with this crescendo. But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. And so what that reminds us, because our God is gracious and merciful, that we can confess our sins and he will forgive That sounds like such a simple truth that I'm just going to ask you to sit on it for a second. You can confess your sin and he will forgive you. You can be open before God. You can tell him the truth. You can stop hiding. You can stop covering up. You can stop putting a spin on it to sound better than you are. You can confess your sin that he already knows and died for, by the way, and he will forgive you. It's true. But Jonah isn't just a story about humanity. It's not just a story about God. Speaking of God's grace and mercy, Jonah is a story about the nations. I want to acknowledge how unusual, as I have a couple of times, Jonah is. Here in the middle of this kind of section of prophets in the Old Testament, we see this one prophet who is a total weirdo and gets swallowed by a fish and spit up on the, like this is unlike any other prophet that we read about in the Old Testament, not just because of his kind of shadow side, but because of the way and the shape that his story takes. It doesn't seem to fit with the flow of the Old Testament. You see, because unlike any prophet that we or the people reading this text had ever seen before, get this, Jonah was sent from Israel to a Gentile nation. Not from the remnant of Israel, To tell Israel to get its act together. Not from the faithful few among Israel sent to the very people that he belonged to. No, Jonah was sent from Israel to a Gentile nation. And what I want us to see and meditate on as we read this over the next several weeks together is that really what this does is point to a larger truth that might have been opaque but should have been clear in the Bible, and that's this. God's heart is and has always been for the nations. 
It is and has always been for the nations from the very first pages of Genesis when he promises to crush the serpent's head with the heel of one who was to come reverberating throughout the covenant promises for his people in the Old Testament at the end of the blessing for which God's people were blessed, staining the cross with the blood of his son and on the lips of people from every tribe and tongue and nation who gather around his throne in Revelation is the love of God for those who are far off. That's true. It's all across scripture. If we weren't seeing it, we should have. And Jonah tells us that it's true. God's heart, his love for, has been given to the nations. He desires his people to proclaim through his covenant relationship with him that they might show off someone who isn't themselves, that people wouldn't look at the nation of Israel and say, wow, what a mighty good kingdom they have, what a, what a, what a great ruler they have, what excellent laws they have, but that they would look at Yahweh, God, and say, this is the one true God. That they might, through Israel's witness, have an invitation to the mercy of God that Israel themselves knew. You see, Jonah points us to that larger truth. That God's heart is not only for the nations, but God intends to reach the nations. This is the very heartbeat of God that we are invited to share in as his people. And maybe as you see that and interact with, you, with that truth, interact with this reality that is all across Scripture, maybe for you that is an encouragement that compels you, to get your hand to the plow, that God is calling you and sending you to proclaim this gospel of, of this good news of Jesus Christ to your neighbors and friends and everyone who will listen to you talk. Maybe it's an encouragement to that end, but maybe for you it's an opportunity to look at yourself Maybe it's an opportunity for repentance. And maybe just in the vein of Jonah, ask yourself, what is the thing that's keeping me from God's heart for the nations? What's the thing that's keeping me from God's heart for the nations? Maybe for you, not to be touchy, that's a sense of superiority. That you look down on the people who you think have been taken captive by harmful ideologies. Whether in the faith or without, by the way, I'll add that caveat. Maybe you look down on these people who are guilty in your mind of wretched atrocities before God. Guilty of things, perpetrating acts of violence on men, women, and children that you can't imagine how these people are deserving of God's mercy. Maybe for you it's a sense of self-righteous superiority that much like Jonah infects your heart more than you care to realize. Maybe that's true. Maybe for you it's a sense of entitlement. I belong to this because God in his mercy has sought me out. And so, cool, we'll gather here every Sunday and just keep this to ourselves. It's really cool, this thing that we've got going on here, this good news that we've come to know. Maybe it's a sense of laziness or apathy. Maybe it's a political aisle that apparently is a gap too large to cross in many instances. What is the thing that keeps you from God's heart for the nations? I'm not even asking you to ask the question, what's the thing that keeps you from sharing the gospel? Because I think maybe the honest answer to that is I don't know how or I'm scared or something like that. I'm asking maybe a more fundamental thing and asking you before the Lord to consider what is the thing that keeps you from the heart? Do you love those who are far off? God does. Look at the cross. God loves those who were far off from him. 
God sent his only son to die on the cross for sins more wretched than you and I can imagine. God loved people who were Democrats. God loved people who are Republicans. God loves people who are Mexican. God loves people who don't share the same values as you. God loves people who got an abortion. God loves people who doubt them. God loves people who do not belong to the same stars and stripes as you belong to in your narrow, self-interested world. God loves them. And he sent his son to die on the cross for them. Surely we can be shaped by the same love for the nations. To share God's heartbeat. To see many come to faith in him. Finally, thread number four. Jonah is a story about Jesus. It's one of my favorite parts of the story. Because it's not even there. And even Jonah didn't know that he and his own story was a story about Jesus. And maybe the first readers of Jonah didn't know that they were in themselves shaping a story about Jesus. Yesterday, uh, my wife and I went to a, uh, with our kids, a Reformation Day uh, party across the street, aka Halloween. It just, you know, depends if your conscience is, you know, too weak to celebrate Halloween or something like that. Uh, but yeah, so we're over there at the Reformation Day party, passing out candy and wearing costumes and stuff like that at the park across the street. And we're on the way back home and, uh, we're walking by and, you know, super gecko muscles on a scooter flying, you know, next to all these cars driving and little pumpkins having a meltdown. And we're just trying to get back to the house. And we see, uh, one of our neighbors curiously sitting in his garden. All of our neighbors are like 80, by the way. And he's sitting in his garden. His wife comes running out in her robe and she says he fell. And uh, so I walked over, he's fine, by the way, before I use this story for sermon points, um, or for personal points, I'm not, um, I was just there, and uh, he, he had fallen, and he needed help getting up, and his son was uh, out, out of the state, who lives with them, and could help them, and so I walk over, and I'm trying to help him, and we're trying to get a plan together, because he's a really big dude, and I'm thinking, like, how am I going to kind of maneuver him around, and so we come up with a plan, I'm like, okay, we're going to roll you over to your knees, and if we can get one leg under you, and kind of crawl up the steps, and at least get to your walker, you know, up in the house. And so we've got this plan together and I get my arms up under him and I'm ready to lift and I'm squatted down and he turns because my head's right beside him. And he says, you know, I can think what I want my legs to do, but they just don't do it. I can think what I want them to do, but they just don't do it. I want to use that to show something that I think is true. We often think of ourselves and other people this way. That we have generally the right idea how to live a good life, how to be good people. We generally want to be good, and we just need a little Jesus power to help us get there. We just need a little Jesus clarity to help us get there. That's the way that we often think about our own story. Uh, Jonah teaches us to think pretty differently. You see, Jonah didn't need a paint job or minor fix-up. No, he needed a total renovation of the soul to follow God's ways. Because even knowing God, his purposes, and seeing his kindness, he was rebellious, bitter, prejudiced, and angry. And he needed a grace that was beyond himself. Because clearly, the answer wasn't within him. Because clearly, the answer was leading him to to Tarshish, away from the call of God. He needed a grace that was beyond himself. You see, really, Jonah in all of the Old Testament, Tim Mackey says, is wisdom literature that leads us to understand we need to be rescued by trusting in something someone else has done for us. I'm going to read that again. Jonah in the rest of the Old Testament is wisdom literature 
that leads us to understand we need to be rescued by trusting in something someone else has done for us. What he's saying is that the creation story, the fall, the beginning of the story of redemption, the giving of the law, the judges appointed to lead and correct God's people, the prophets, Israel's kings, all of these movements that we've seen throughout the Old Testament and here in Jonah as well, point us to the human inability to rightly relate to God and his creation. What they point us to, all of these things, is an inability to be human as God intended, an inability to be human. And for this reason, that's why we need someone, in a sense, to be human for us. We need someone to be human for us. Now, curiously, in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, that person that Jonah intended to point us to, that rescuer that would do something that we could not do, that human that would be human for us, Jesus says, was himself. Jesus says was himself, that he is the greater Jonah who was to come, that just like Jonah, he came preaching a message of mercy to the undeserving, inviting people to a salvation through faith and repentance. Only Jesus would not spend three days and three nights in the belly of a whale because of his rebellion from God, but instead would spend three days and nights in the earth because of ours. Jesus became human for us. He did the thing we could not do. Unlike the anti-hero Jonah, Jesus was perfectly obedient to God's will, something we could not do. He died on the cross for the sins of the world, something we could not fathom, and was resurrected in defeat of the sin we could not overcome on our own. Jonah mysteriously and curiously invites us to see and know Jesus. That just like Jonah, we can't do it. Just like Jonah, we need an answer apart from ourselves. It shapes us and shows us to place our faith and hope and trust in him to save, to lean on his grace amidst our failures and sin and frustration and disappointment, and to likewise, by his grace, be restored and conformed to his will and way above our own. That is the story of Jesus in Jonah, the gospel according to Jonah, not an apocryphal book, just our reading. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he uh, took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Uh, We've been talking this morning about things that could not be imagined or could not be fathomed because they were yet to come. But Jesus crystallizes uh, a truth that's embedded all throughout history that he would become the sin offering for us. That he was the lamb of God sent to die on the cross for our sins, that his body would be broken and his blood would be shed for us. And Paul instructs us that as often as we gather, just as Jesus did with his disciples, to observe this meal, this this covenant picture here with communion, uh, to observe this meal of Christ's body being broken and blood being shed for us, that we might proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so, friends, we do that this morning. Our invitation is that you are, if you are a Christian, uh, we're going to do things a little bit differently with the lay of the room being different. Uh, you're going to come forward and receive the elements from living, breathing people and not from a plate. And uh, so you can receive the elements, come down the center aisle, return around to the uh, further aisles to your seat, and then remain standing, and we will uh, sing another song of worship. If you are not a Christian, we ask that you do not take this meal. Instead, uh, our plea is that you take Christ. This mercy and this merciful, gracious God that we speak about, and even the egg-headed Jonah that maybe reminds you a little bit too much of yourself, uh, that mercy can be yours in Jesus. And so you can call upon his name this morning.
and be saved. And so I'll pray in just a moment. Come take of the elements when you're ready. Father, we declare that you are good and kind and far above us. That these stories we scratch the surface of and these realities that we visit this morning in your word were woven together by you. When you spoke the world into existence, you knew of a fish who would swallow a prophet whole. And you knew of a prophet like him who was to come, who was your son who would tell us of your goodness and grace and mercy that could be ours. Father, you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins, that we might know you, that we might be rescued from our rebellion and turn to you instead. Father, we ask that as we interact with this story and the story of Jonah, as we learn truths reflected back to us about who you are and your love for the nations and your thoughts about us and who Jesus is, Father, I pray that you would shape in us a real faith. That we might, through Jesus, draw ever more near to you, to walk with you, to lean on your grace, lean on your understanding, that to live by the power of the Spirit who lives in us. Father, we ask these things, do this work in us that we know is yours in your sovereign hand of mercy and grace to give. We ask this morning 